the electorate doesn't hear that last bit. They don't hear the fact that they have to pay for it privately. They only hear the first bit about how um, you're going to increase essentially charges for it. Here in the UK, we're in the middle of a general election campaign. Between now and polling day on the 12th of December, the BMJ is running a series of podcasts looking at the claims being made around health in the election campaign. Today we're at the King's Fund in central London and we're going to be discussing what this year's general election means for the NHS and social care. I have with me Bill Morgan, Sivren Andesiva and Sally Warren. Could you introduce yourselves please? Uh, I'm Bill Morgan. I'm a former special advisor at the Department of Health and uh, I've worked on uh, a few um, political campaigns, election campaigns uh, from uh, political party headquarters and I'm now a uh, a consultant at a health policy consultancy in of Health. Hi, I'm Sally Warren. I'm the Director of Policy at the King's Fund. Hi, I'm Sivran Andesiva, the Chief Analyst here at the King's Fund. Great, thank you. Um, Bill, can I come to you first? You've been involved in um, developing policy over a number of years. How much do people's views on particular policies in manifestos affect how they vote? How much can we put down the differences between one party and another? And that it's, it is very little. Um, the electorate doesn't have a huge knowledge of um, individual uh, um, p- commitments made by political parties. Um, actually, if you look at um, this, this might have changed since uh, my day, but if you look at um, what motivates people to vote for a particular party, um, the most important thing, the most important sentiment is: Does the leader of this political party share my values? Um, that's 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 the the, the, the most um, um, important thing. But second, always is does this does the leader of the politi- this political party care about the NHS? Um, that was always number two, always an absolutely critical um, um, element of uh, a campaign. And uh, David Cameron, who I worked for, obviously put the NHS front and centre of his own personal commitment mm. um, to policy. But if you look at the detail of manifesto policy commitments, no, it doesn't really have a huge I- amount of impact. People have said that, that this will be a kind of, it's a, you know, it's been called because of Brexit, but the NHS will be quite central to it. Is, is that how you would have said it's playing out? I wouldn't, actually. And that has surprised me in a way, because there was so much noise um, running into the campaign itself. That, you know, the Tories were going to really pin Labour back on the NHS. Um, and Labour themselves were going to take the fight for the Tories on the NHS. And um, really, the Tories have been quite... I can't remember off the top of my head a many um, big, big policy announcements that we've made during the campaign. There was something on dementia research. Um, there was something on an innovative medicines fund. There's been announcements on gambling addiction services. Um, but none of that sort of high-profile, um, big-picture um, policy announcements that you'd expect to see if a party really was campaigning on the NHS. Um, and similarly, I haven't really seen what I'd expect from Labour either, Um you know, there's been a lot of noise around from Labour about the prospect of a, a, a trader with Trump and the impact on the NHS. Um, but I, what I don't understand is why Labour aren't um, pushing harder their, their 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 commitment to spend more on the NHS um, than the Tories. And that's, that's not in doubt. That's in the manifestos. Um, and equally, I don't understand why Labour aren't pushing harder on waiting times, given that it was such an important... Um, such a big achievement of the last Labour government, um, and yet it seems, to, and waiting time performance is deteriorating, and yet it seems to be absent from the current Labour manifesto. Mm. Instead of, oh, sorry, I was just going to ask you, about in terms of the p- 
proposals that are out there, how do they match with the day-to-day pressures you see the service facing? So I think the proposals and the various manifestos from the three main parties actually do quite do match quite well against the day-to-day pressures you see in the service. So uh, what do you see if you read the manifestos? What really cuts through? It's a clear emphasis on needing more staff on the ground, a commitment to raise funding levels for uh, the health service in particular, uh, a lot of promises to build new things, build new buildings and facilities in the NHS. And that's absolutely when you walk around uh, NHS services, what you hear. You hear, I haven't got enough staff, my rotors can't be filled, uh, I'm utterly reliant on that one locum that is keeping my department running. You hear that I'm working in a dilapidated building where part of my nursing handover at the end of every round is uh, look at all the water damage in the walls when it gets to this point, start unplugging equipment. You know, that's their day to day reality. And a service that feels like it's been uh, severely underfunded and all of those chickens have come home to roost. So on the surface, it does look like politicians have listened and uh, delivered some of what uh, NHS frontline clinicians might be looking for. But at the same time, there's also quite a lot that's lacking, and uh, this is more Sally's area, but when you look at social care funding reform, that's probably the thing that keeps coming up over and over again when you walk around uh, frontline services. They say, when is someone going to sort out social care funding reform? And that is one area well, I think you do see a little bit more difference between the different parties. Yeah, and I think it's it's worth saying, Bill's absolutely right that there's not a lot of policy cut through to the public about the NHS. Um, but it is really important that all of the manifestos reflect the reality of the front line right now and have credible proposals. Because although they might not know the detail of the policy, there's over one and a half million people working in the NHS. They have friends and family. So whether staff in the NHS feel that there's a credible plan has quite a kind of a knock-on impact in terms of people's overall sense of this party is or isn't credible uh, when it comes to the NHS. So I think that sense of are these proposals rooted in the reality of what it's like to be working day in and day out in our health and care system is really important. And they, I guess we were expecting an election for quite a long time. People had time to prepare these as a sense in which they do look a bit thrown together. I mean, when you read them in detail, the Conservatives are probably less than the others. But would, would I mean, any of you really, but would... Do they contain what you were expecting? Have we seen from the date we, uh, we were expecting elections when those manifestos came out, are there key bits that were missing out? Are there key bits that you were additional that are kind of a positive? How do they match up to kind of where the policy discussion was and where we were expecting the party to go at the kind of start gun Yeah, um, I mean, they are. there's always an element of uh, manifestos being thrown together. Uh, I don't think they're as thrown together as they were in 2017, if you look at the all the main parties' manifestos. They were um, um, obviously not um, carefully drafted uh, in, in, in some respects, um, not insulated from the risk of um, political damage either. I think in terms of um, what they contain, I think the broad issues are all in there. You know, the, the kinds of things we were, um, which you'd have expected to see in manifestos are all in there. Um, commitments to um, uh, funding the NHS, although there's, there's there's variation around the amount of funding. Commitments to invest in capital, um, all the parties are um, obviously focused on that. Some degree of um, commitment to reform um, social care too, although again that varies. Um, I guess the, the, the thing which I always find most interesting about manifestos is those sort of retail offers, um, which... Um, um, 
never go through a particularly sophisticated process of policy making before finding their way into manifestos so whether that's the sort of uh, whether that's the sort of um free dental checkups in the labor manifesto or the um hypothecated tax in the lib dem manifesto or the um or the free car parking in the conservative manifesto these are ones made kind of as a sell as a sort of as a retail yeah you're yeah. on the doorstep why should i vote for you they're right. the kind of they're the kind of things that you equip your um canvases to say yeah. I think when we look at the manifestos right at the start of the campaign, the King's Fund set out a kind of five areas that we wanted to see the manifesto seriously tackle, which were really about saying our health is about much more than the NHS. So we wanted to see public health and population health seriously addressed, um, social care both in terms of supporting the current system but also long-term reform, uh, some real commitment to mental health and well-being. Um, workforce recognizing the absolute crisis and workforce across health and care and then finally some real certainty around funding all five of those issues do appear in manifestos in one form or another parties are stronger or weaker in different parts of it so the conservatives don't really have a serious proposition on social care reform but have some of the more detailed proposals around workforce for example uh, Labour and the Liberal Democrats have quite a sophisticated approach to public health and a health and all policies approach whereas the conservatives have much less detail and that's a, actually an, also a common theme we see that the conservative manifesto doesn't have the same detail that the other two main parties do so comparing in tensions is quite hard because just because it's not in the manifesto does that mean it won't happen or it's just they've gone for the clearer retail description rather than the kind of policy descriptions yeah i thought actually looking at the manifestos there was a lot of material across all three main ones that uh, look well thought through and, and tested and then there are always things that have the hallmarks of being thrown together either stuff that's not in there that you would expect and you know, I'm still just stunned that there isn't more concrete proposals from all the parties on social care. You've had a lot of time to think about this. So the fact that it's not in there means either you don't know what to do or you know what you want to do. You just don't think you can do it. Uh, and things like GP access to GPs, where it's in there in a very coded way over more appointments, more staff means more appointments, but not setting some of the waiting time targets you might have expected from reading some of the speeches earlier on by political leaders. And then, as Bill said, you get things that just make you scratch your head, like car parking. This is meant to be a vision for the next five years uh, for the health and care service. Car parking is one of those things you could have sorted at any point in the last five years if it really was a priority. Why is it only appearing now? Mm. And in terms of social care reform and that <coughs> lack of detail, I mean, that my reading of that is that it's because parties um, policies just get shot down by you know being given a label the dementia tax that you know because of the specific details get caricatured and pulled apart is bill is that how you the reasons you would see it they're just yeah. thinking i'm not i'm not just not yeah, writing down what i'm saying yeah i think politically social care funding reform in particular is you know it's like you've got to handle it like semtex it's mm. uh, it's thoroughly dangerous to start um exposing to the um uh, the kind of pressure of an election campaign and we saw that in 2017 with a uh, dementia tax and we saw it in 2010 with a death tax it's um it could really um blow up in your face and it is it is it's a very intensely political question and it's hard to handle politically because so many people think social care is free so if you if you open up a discussion about how you're going to reform social care funding to encourage more people to pay for uh, social care through taxation or through some kind of social insurance um, in place of 
people paying for it privately. The electorate doesn't hear that last bit. They don't hear the fact that they have to pay for it privately. They only hear the first bit about how um, you're going to increase essentially charges for it. And, um, and the electorate naturally reacts very badly to that. And in the heat of an election campaign, it's not the right time to try and get those kinds of um, messages across. Really, what you want to use one entire parliament to um, pitch roll, to inform the public debate on social care and arrive at a solution. Use the next election campaign to put it in your manifesto and then the immediate aftermath, years one and two of the second parliament, to implement it. I think it's that kind of length that you need to implement a, a, a genuine, meaningful change to social care funding. And why don't people understand social care? I mean, it, it impacts a lot of people. It impacts people's parents and children it i mean is it that it's not meant i don't know not mentioned in soaps or not discussed places or not people don't think of it as social care is that term does that term not reach through that and don't think what they're receiving is social care yeah. it seems very odd given the number of people who yeah, yeah. receive yeah it. so i think there's a whole host of issues as to what's driving the lack of awareness part of it is uh, to an, an kind of member of the public it can feel quite odd to work out why is it that if I have cancer I get all of my needs paid for free at the point of use by the NHS but if I have dementia I don't so there's there's a kind of when does a condition meet the kind of the requirements of the NHS and be free and when isn't it so there is a sense of uh, it's a slightly it can feel really random and although new proposals can easily get branded the dementia tax I think we can too easily forget the current system we have is absolutely a dementia tax and couldn't really be a harsher dementia tax than it currently is so all the proposals that have been shot down in the last 12-15 years have all been considerably better than the current model but we've not been able to kind of take politicians and the public and the media with us on that journey to explain the current model. I think there's also something more fundamental around um, people don't really like to think about getting old, needing care and support, becoming frail. We're talking here about quite intimate tasks, which are personal care. This is toileting people, bathing them, helping them get dressed. It's stuff that we, as normal human beings, try to ignore for as long as humanly possible. So we don't talk about it. We don't have a brand we recognise and we don't understand why some things are free on the NHS and some things aren't. And all of that just means we kind of don't have much engagement with social care until we find a family member might need it. And then that's we're in a crisis at that point. So we're also in quite a difficult stage for us to be able to fully understand the system. So we're not only don't understand the system, we're then kind of crisis users of the system when we finally reach it. Mm. And we talk a lot about the NHS being weaponized uh, politically, actually hearing hearing what you've just said. Uh, it's social care that's clearly been weaponized and it's uh, Semtex, as, as Bill said, just such a toxic issue. But perhaps the one benefit of dementia taxes and death taxes is raising public awareness of this as an issue and you know it's a high price to pay but but you know we get a lot of international visitors and you always see the pride people talk about um when they t describe the nhs comprehensive universal free at the point of use and then when anyone asks well what about social care services or their equivalent you see that pride sort of melt away and i think some of the deliberative work we've done with the public we keep coming back to this issue of fairness. Once you understand what social care is, how it's funded, how it's different, it feels fundamentally unfair that we are not pooling risks in the same way we would do if you had cancer or a heart attack. And when <clears throat> parties are putting together a manifesto and they think, well, social care is a big problem, we want to tackle it, how much are they thinking about, here's the problem, here's how we solve it, and how much are they thinking about the sort of retail 
um, pledges you were talking about, how much do they think about this is how it be sold and how much are they saying, actually, this is a programme of government and we need to solve this big problem that's affecting people's lives? Uh, is it kind of reactive or is it... Um... It's a bit of both. I think, it, you know, it sort of mirrors in a way how government behaves, where the, the government departments look at these kinds of... Um, sort of medium long term issues and try and construct policy solutions to um to address them and then it's number 10's job to address look after the politics basically that's number 10's sort of function in our world and um a political party behaves in much the same way the the, the front bench teams whoever they are the health team or the, you know business treasury team or whatever it might be they'll they'll look after their own they'll they'll have more understanding of the issues and they sort of do the first draft, the first cut of a chapter of a manifesto. Is all traditionally this has always been how it's worked. But then it goes up into um, you know what in my day was the leader's office, um, and of course you've got people there whose job it is to look at data, to understand what people think, to test ideas out, and um, quite a lot at that point ends up on the cutting floor. Um, and of course a lot of insertions go in as well, like these you know proposals for free car parking and things like that, which I doubt emerge from the front bench teams. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a bit of both. There's, there's a genuine element of, you know, considered policymaking going into manifestos, but there's naturally, you know, the final gloss is uh, applied by people who care only about the politics. And I think particularly with social care, because you're, in effect, designing a new funding system from scratch, the policy geeks amongst us can absolutely kind of have fun with creating the most complex system but economically efficient or beautifully pure kind of model that there's literally no way the public would understand so part of the policy making process before you then even get into the kind of the political kind of retail cell is about trying to have a balance between what's a model that the public can understand versus what's the most economically efficient model and Labour's proposal on free personal care is something that actually we know from the experience in Scotland the public do understand it we know it can be implemented is it the perfect social care policy well probably not but I don't think the perfect policy exists because if you could create it nobody would understand it and therefore nobody would interact with it so I think that there is that always that dilemma and the balance in policy about how do you create a good enough system that improves it, keeps it fair, um, but also something that the public can understand. I mean, a lot of the, um, well, all the manifestos really promise more money in a way that we haven't seen for a while, I guess. You know, if you if you plotted the, the trajectories of where funding's going over the, you know, compared to the um, co coalition government and recent conservative governments, it's, you know, it's going to be an uptick, whoever gets in. How long will it be before the services see that impact? I mean, we're going to winter it'll be um it's going to be a tough period and then just the the practicalities of that money getting to the front line how, how long will it be before we see benefits so this is one thing that really worried me actually reading the manifestos because at various times you see commitments to either main stabilize maintain improve or restore waiting time performance how long you wait in a and e how long you wait for a planned operation and Stabilising, improving and restoring are very, very different things. And given the amount of funding on offer, given the workforce crisis where you've got clinical vacancies uh, left, right and centre, given that you've got a decade of underfunding of the NHS to make up for, I think the best you could hope for is stabilising the deterioration in waiting times. Uh, in the past, what you would do if you had a sudden influx of cash into the system is 
you would hire more staff, you would contract more activity from the independent sector, you would have surgeons operating in evenings and on weekends. And all of those avenues seem fairly closed off. We just haven't got the staffing capacity. Uh, good luck finding a surgeon who will operate given the pensions tax liability. So I think you're quite boxed in. And as a result, it will be some time before you see the material impact on services, which, you know, for the Treasury will be a hard a hard conversation to have. We ploughed in all this money. Where is it going? How is it being spent? I think it's also just worth us being clear about, um, yes, some of the, the manifestos have in them in large increases of funding, but there is difference about where that funding is focused. So all three parties commit to uh, increasing the funding for NHS England, so the day-to-day running costs of the NHS. But we haven't got a clarity of the plans from the Conservatives about the rest of the kind of Department of Health and Social Care budget. So what's the capital budget, the training budget, the public health budget? Partly that might reflect the approach they've taken, which is a lack of detail, but also it's hard for us then to compare to think, okay, we've got small snippets of spending commitments from the Tories in those areas, but we don't have a sense of what their overall plan is for the capital budget, for the training budget. So again, what we could find is the money's going to frontline services where really when you're having a growth period, you want the money to be going to your training pipeline, to your capital pipeline, to mean you're spending it on the, on the right stuff to help you be sustainable in the long run. Yeah, I think, um, I think this is probably what, um, concerns me um, most of all about. I mean, to go all a bit Roy Stewart, you wouldn't expect politicians to be completely serious during a general election campaign. But um, it is concerning to me that you know this is the first year, 1920, of a new financial funding settlement. It's probably the best year, at least. At least this is what the Treasury are trying to say. I mean, the best year in financial terms for the NHS until probably 23, 24. Um, and uh, we saw in the, I think the Health Service Journal yesterday published new data showing that that, that, that money is not delivering any meaningful impact to the financial health of the NHS. Um, and I think that should be a wake-up call for um, all politicians, all advisors who are preparing for government, because it does point to some quite drastic action which needs to be taken in years one and two of a new parliament which is the only time you can take drastic action in uh, it's got to be early in the electoral cycle because um, speaking quite cynically you sort of get out of the way and hope that everyone's forgotten by the time you um, face the electorate again um, and I just don't think nothing in the manifestos clearly um, but not much in the campaign debate um, sort of uh, sort of suggests that politicians have quite faced up to that reality but it's 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 really challenging out to the NHS the finances are in terrible shape and the performance is deteriorating um, and how on earth you can stabilize that is, um, is, 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 is is something which I think needs to be focused on and I know we've talked a lot about social care in this podcast but there is a reason for that you know, I, I went to see uh, one, uh, one of the probably bottom decile in performance against the A&E standard and talking to the A&E department clinical lead and saying, if I, if I could give your trust £100 million, what would you spend it on to improve performance? And he said, I'd hand it straight back to the local authority and say, can you fund social care? Because that's the single biggest thing that will make a difference to my life as an A&E consultant. So is there a risk in the sort of, <clears throat> from a politician's perspective, that voters are going to say, well, you promised all this extra money and they don't really see any change. And that, you know, for the people working in the health service, they're going to say, well, there's an expectation from them that the public are then placing on them that things are going to be 
different and they won't see the improvements that they saw under Labour when the waiting time you know were pushed yeah. back and there was a sort of step change in, in, in performance of the health service but but th- we're talking about these huge sums of money going in. I think the most concerning thing for me about this situation if 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 money doesn't deliver performance improvements is that um you begin to see questions people raise questions about the funding model for the NHS if money is pumped into the NHS and yet it doesn't actually deliver improvements um then naturally people including Whitehall will start asking questions like are we have we got you know is a taxpayer funded model the right one for the NHS and most questions begin to emerge now I'm always confident that any politician of whatever colour would always stamp on those questions. But I think it's an unhelpful place for the debate um, to head towards. And, there's, um, and it can be avoided, I say, again, if there's um, action in years one and two, both to support social care, which isn't linked necessarily to long-term funding reform, but just making sure that money goes into social care, um, and to fix how the NHS financial flows work and to instill a bit of financial discipline into the NHS those actions are needed and they're quite painful but those actions are really needed in years one and two um, of a new parliament to make sure that performance improvements are delivered as a result of the extra money because that's ultimately what taxpayers will expect yeah and I think if you look at public satisfaction and particularly patient satisfaction with the NHS one of the kind of more astounding things is actually it held up pretty well in the first few years of austerity but it has really started to dip now so what you find is people really dissatisfied with access but much more satisfied once they can kind of get in the service Um, and if that continues to keep dipping I think that is when you start to have a real challenge about the public feeling like they've been misled by politicians they feel like they were promised all of this money all these extra staff they won't necessarily realize that it might be five seven years before some of those staff come on board so I think the disconnect between people's expectations and the reality of the pace of improvement will become a real challenge I think in the next parliament and if anyone's ever tempted to look at the funding model uh, just don't do it and if you want, if you want the evidence, just look to the past. Where uh, yes, there are about a thousand people waiting over a year for planned care, which is a thousand people too many. It wasn't that long ago that it was five hundred thousand people waiting that long for planned care. So I think both the health and care service, whether you look at delayed transfers of care being reduced, have shown they can deliver when they're given the conditions for success, rather than throwing everything up in the air. Uh, probably just return to giving them the conditions for success. So I think uh, it would be uh, beyond brave of any politician to suggest that the NHS model should no longer be free at the point of use. I cannot see any British electorate supporting a party that wants to move away from that model. They are much more likely to support income tax increases to properly fund the NHS. I think where you can more legitimately get into a question about the overall funding model is when you start to recognise the NHS doesn't work in isolation. It's not an island, but the funding settlements for the last five, six, seven years have acted as if the NHS is an island. So it's given NHS England a budget and a long-term financial settlement whilst tightening the screws on social care and on public health. So if we want to think about the conditions of success for the service, that has to be about saying you can't just fund one of those areas. We are a three-legged stool. You've got to fund all three of those aspects of the service properly public health so we can help to shift the demand curve in the future, social care so we can be supporting people to live in their own home as independently as possible, 
a byproduct of which is they should be in hospital much less and then a health system that can deliver high quality care but so I think it's much more likely that you then get into a debate about what level of tax increases are people prepared to contemplate than any question about will the British public contemplate uh, dismantling the current funding model I see no prospect of that happening um, and can I ask all of you, I guess, what what policies you would like the parties putting forward to make real change, what the NHS really needs to see, and what also you would suggest want they put in to win votes and, and, and how they differ. So what would make a, what's a kind of, you know, like a, maybe a retail offer or like maybe a, an easy one to put in to win votes or a big thing that would win votes, but also what, what does the service kind of need? And, and if it's something that's not in them, that would be great, kind of a new idea or something. Yeah, well, I guess the one for me, which... Um seems obvious to include and i don't really know why um any of the parties appear to be avoiding it is um um to 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 adhere to the nhs's waiting time target um and um i know there's a review going on um to to determine whether those are the right targets to have um but it just seems to me that those 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 waiting time improvements were so um hard won um and they're such an important um, visible sign to the electorate that the, the NHS is responsive um, to their needs. Um, I just think it's so important that you know adhering to those waiting time um, commitments is uh, is important. Um, I guess the second thing I'd personally like to see, and I sound like a bit of a dinosaur here, is um, is uh, a commitment to choice in um, particularly the um, Conservative manifesto, which is where you'd expect to. Um, see it, and I understand why choice has sort of um, fallen off the radar in the last ten or so years, fifteen years, um, both for political reasons because it um, excites those sort of privatisation arguments, but also for um, sort of more substantive reasons, which is that the patient case mix has changed, and you know we're, the NHS is caring for patients with more common conditions when it, you know just having to um, um, provide a lot of cataract surgery and hip replacement, and choice is quite hard to make work for chronic conditions um, but that's no excuse not to try and make it work because I think if we if we look at how we improve the NHS in the coming years um, improving the efficiency of the NHS continues to be important and choice as a means of making sure that supply is matched with demand is um, is an important tool in in in, in, in um, policymakers uh, um, toolbox so you know that's personally what I'd have liked to have seen more of yeah. So I think from my perspective, what um, I'd like to see across all of the manifestos is a bit more honesty. Uh, so I think Bill's absolutely right that actually if the public's going to uh, continue to support the NHS, the fact that we've just not hit any of our waiting time standards for so long is kind of very odd and isn't sustainable. But nor can we pretend that we can just meet those waiting times next year. So I think what we need is politicians who are prepared to say, yes, we've put, we are putting in a lot of money in the NHS. Um but you may well, as a pub, as a member of the public or as a patient in this system, not see the benefit for three, four, five years. But here's our plan to get there. So that sense of let's not build in unrealistic expectations that then actually mean it's it becomes even more stressful to work in the health service because you constantly feel that you're failing to live up to those expectations. So for me, that sense of let's be honest about the scale and pace of improvement is really, really important. And in terms of what... Um, What's the kind of one thing that I think uh, is kind of missing or could really help? Um, 
my normal answer is social care, but I'm going to be slightly different and not say social care because actually the Labour Party proposal on free personal care with a cap is, I think, a really uh, decent starting point for um, building action on that. But there's something we could do more immediately, which is could we increase the offer around reablement and intermediate care beds to help improve capacity there to mean that we're both improving people's qualities of life through that that service offer but also reducing pressure on the NHS so I think there are some small tactical steps you could take that you could implement much more quickly than wholesale reform that could make a big difference to the system but also to people's lives so for me um, I probably what you said you know when I look at the manifestos um, this is going to sound awful I believe that whoever wrote them believes what they're saying but I'd want some more authenticity for me, I would say, uh, and this is a retail offer that will never sell, but it would be, do you know what? Uh, we are starting from a pretty poor position on NHS waiting times, but it's not as bad as you think. The majority of people are still seen within four hours in A&E, even though we're not where we want to be. Uh, we're giving the system more cash than it's had in the recent past, but it's not going to be enough because we haven't got enough staff. So we've got a choice here as a country. We could build 25 new hospitals, try and staff them, or... We could try and do something different and invest in services that will hopefully keep you healthier and prevent the need for uh, hospital care in the first place. And that's the path we're going down. But the proposition to you is, despite all this extra money, you might still be waiting longer for care. Vote for us. So it's not it's not a great sell, but I, I feel I could get behind that as a as a voter i think Siva and i are proving whilst while we work in a policy place and yeah. not we're not political advisors yeah absolutely so <laughs> if you were to ask me about the transport system and say we're paying in all this money but you'll be waiting longer for your train <laughs> i might have a very different reaction bill Siva, and sally have all been involved in a king's fund breakfast event discussion focused on what this year's general election means for the nhs and social care if you want to catch up with that event after listening to this podcast you can do so by heading to the king's fund youtube channel And if you want to subscribe to the King's Fund podcast, which covers big ideas in health and care, you can find details of that on the King's Fund website and listen to recent podcasts around issues like race quality in the NHS workforce and exploring a public health approach to serious youth violence. If you've not yet caught up with the previous podcasts we've done around the election, do give those a listen. We've talked to Rebecca Rosen and Claire Girardo about the political debate around primary care, to David Oliver and Hugh Alderwick about some of the funding pledges that are being made by the main parties, and to Jennifer Dixon and Nikki Philpott around, about the wider determinants of health. I should also mention the BMJ's own celebration of the NHS, as entries are now open for the BMJ Awards 2020. The awards recognise the incredible work that healthcare teams across the UK do. So if you or your team have worked on a project that you think deserves national recognition, go to thebmjawards.bmj.com to find out more about entry. Entries close on the 17th of January, so you can have a month or so to put your entry together. And as I say, you can find all the details on thebmjawards.bmj.com. Thank you.